Welcome to uh, Hollowed Waters Podcast. Uh, this is Matt Sapinski. I am hosting the podcast. Um, and uh, we're going to give you 45 minutes of um, hopefully some very in-depth uh, look at the passion for trout, salmon, and steelhead. Um, and what Hollowed Waters Journal is all about. Um, uh, over the pandemic and COVID, we, um, we rethought our relationship with fly fishing and what it meant to us and what it means to the whole world. And um, after writing books and articles for 30 years and uh, seeing a lot of media um, go by the wayside and only scraping the surface of what the whole fly fishing experience is, um, we started the passion for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing as it was meant to be. Um, and uh, I look back at the days when I started writing back with Nick Lyons, who taught me how to write, and um, so many great mentors, the old Fly Fisherman magazines in the 70s, 80s, 74, 75, uh, Richards and Dick Popes and people like that, um, that sort of paved the way for, uh, for my development and my um, tutelage in Pennsylvania with Vince Marinero. So I had some great mentors. But... Today, we're sort of treating fly fishing like an action sport, and it's not um, what it was intended to be. It was, a, it, was a, it was a soulful vibe, a karma, a zen, um, a sport that got into the depth of the experience, and the experience was grounded in science and history and lore and, and hollowed waters, and it was all about the waters and the fish and the beauty of the fly and the beauty of, of the whole art form fusing together. So that's what we're trying to do with Hollowed Waters is uh, is to get back to that spirit. And uh, in our first three issues, uh, the accolades we've received have been amazing. Write-ups we've received in many magazines, including Trout Magazine of Trout Unlimited. Um, it, it's really kind of cool to uh, to absorb a new beginning in fly fishing and a new way of looking at it from a more spiritual, soulful depth. Um, so that's basically, we're going to use Hollowed Waters podcasts to have fun, to have incredible speakers on their topics, um, and use it as, a, as an engine to fuel the topics we discuss in Hollowed Waters Journal. Um, we're going to be talking about the legacy of fly fishing and the importance of legacy and history. Um, if, if, you're, uh, if you don't, uh, there's so many sayings out there, but I think... Um, uh, several that come to mind, you know, it, we're damned to relive the past if we don't understand the future or vice. I think I just said that wrong the opposite way. But we have to understand our our heritage, our past, where it came from. And uh, the legacy is going to be a three-part series featuring Michigan, New York, and Pennsylvania. And if you drew an inverted triangle from the Catskills to the Asabo and northern Michigan and down to Pennsylvania, Cumberland Valley and the Broadheads and State College – it's, it's an inverted triangle of historical importance. And that's what we're going to be. Um, we're going to be focusing on that historical importance and how it relates to us fishing today. So uh, at this is going to be the legacy of Michigan. And uh, I've been here 30 years now and uh, I'm learning more and more about it. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, a guy that embraces the whole Northern Michigan experience that, has made his living up there, has, has set his roots up there, 
Um, and somebody you've probably read about a lot. Um, we featured uh, Ethan Winchester in our magazine in the spring issue on Mayflies. Um, and Ethan's been around for a while. He's uh, the head of uh, Boyne Outfitters, and um, he's a passionate guy with uh, a lot of Zen and karma, and he's a conservationist. Uh, you've read about him in people's blogs and books and on different pot sites of the venturing angler and places like that. And um, he's just, he's all about the passion. And, and what we're going to feature in Hollowed Waters podcast is about the passion and the intensity level. And, and the people we're going to have on here are going to shed light on, on so many things, fly fishing that we just skim over and, and we gloss over and sugarcoat that, that we need to be paying a lot of attention to. So, uh, at this point, I'm going to introduce Ethan Winchester. Ethan, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. It's uh, it's great to be here and talk to you. And and like you said, I'm just excited to share share the passion and 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 dig through these things with you. Fantastic. Yeah. So, Ethan, tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, where were your roots? Number one, where did you get bit by the fly fishing passion? And uh, and it you know, maybe it wasn't fly fishing were off the start. Maybe it was dangling a worm for like Schwebert and Hemingway did for bluegills and things of that nature. What, what, what's a little brief bio on, on Ethan? Yeah. So I am born and bred Northern Michigan. Um, my family's been up here, um, on one side since the logging era. Um, and then the other side came in, you know, between there. Um, but, you know, I've been fishing since I was about two years old and it did, it started with dunking worms and brook trout streams, chasing bluegill. You know, I grew up and about 12 years old, um, the fly fishing bug kind of grabbed me and I, I, I started tying before I started fishing. Um, and a, a family friend um, kind of took me under his wing, you know, the traditional 10 and two, here's the rod, go play and have fun. Um, and I didn't really have a whole lot of formal education for quite a few years, but, you know, I, I think, I think like a lot of Michigan anglers, you know, my first flies were really cast on the ensemble. Um, but then I started, you know, heading, heading more towards home, you know, and, and, and figuring out these little smaller streams that, that I've come to work on now, um, you know, the Jordan and the pigeon and the black, you know, and, and then, you know, through college, my whole background was public safety. I was, you know, I did law enforcement as a firefighter before I graduated high school. Um, but I, I, I didn't want to do that for a living. And, and I, I got done with college. I wanted to, I wanted to be a fly fishing guide and I want to be a fly fishing guide in Alaska. And I went up there and did that for a season. And then I came home and I wanted to do things here. And luckily, you know, I had some connections with Boyne and, and, and we were able to start the shop there. And for the last, let's see, 10, 11 years, I've been, I've been guiding up here full-time in Northern Michigan. And I've got a, I've got a crew of seven other guys that work for me. And, and we kind of cover everything you know, north of the Asable, um, Northwest, North Central part of the lower peninsula. Um, we cover a pretty big range, but we love it. Well, that's, that's beautiful. And, and, and the, the passion came to you so early. Um, let me ask you, what was your first um, fly tying kit um, that got you going? So you're very similar to me. I started, I got a late start. I was like probably five or six. So you've got a couple of years on me, but um, <laughs> I, um, I got, so the, so I got this fly tying kit from Kmart, I think, and it had three flies in it. It had a McGinty, a black gnat, and I think the other one was, Adams was more contemporary. 
this was something like the mosquito or something, something that like, I guess the Brook Trout soft tackle mosquito. Yeah. It was like the, 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 the chunkiest flies are just chenille and you wrap some feather on the damn thing. And, uh, so I got pretty good at fly tying because I loved it. And, um, but it was, it was really crude. I mean, it was so crude that it was embarrassing. And then I, I started tying flies, got really good at it, and I got a little more upscale in, in, in equipment. And then I started tying for Reed's Orvis shop in Buffalo, which was one of the first Orvis shops in the country. And that's how I sort of got into an Orvis relationship at a very young age. But it's amazing how our whole lives probably were just totally fueled by can't wait to go fishing into that trout stream and catch that little trout. Right. It was like, it was like a passion that you don't know what else to do with your life. It's like, you. Oh, were- I remember, I remember jumping on the bike, you know, just to my bicycle and leaving the house and, and going down to creeks that ran through the golf courses and back, you know, my dad was a funeral director. And, and so there was a, there's this little Creek that runs through the cemetery in Charlevoix. And I was out, you know, tossing worms while he was, while he was doing stuff in the cemetery. And <laughs> I mean, I just remember every, everything revolved around fishing. And, and even to this day, it still does. You know, I'm married and have a baby and, and my wife gets it. And that's just how it works. He asks you every day, probably Ethan, what are you going to do when you want to grow up? You know, and then, geez, I'm 50, I just turned into my mid sixties and I'm like, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up either. And I'm still bit by this damn bug. And it, it's just, it, it's encompassing and, we still get nervous when we go fishing. We still get excited when we go fishing. Absolutely. Um, it's, I think once you lose that, then it just becomes a job. And there's, um, sadly, there's so many, I don't know if you want to call them guides, Alvarez, they, they treat it like it's some kind of nine to five terrible job. And it, and it really isn't. I mean, we should actually be paying customers for, for our pleasure that we get out of <laughs> more excited than they do. And yeah, we have our bad days in the office and we have our bad days in the dressing room and, but um, but yeah, it's it's great to hear that your passion was at a very early age because I think those are the passions that sort of like you weren't you didn't want it. It was it was you were a calling. It was like becoming a priest. You had the calling. It's like it grabbed you and say, hey, you're coming with me, and you're just going to be stuck in the stream with my trout. And uh, it's very similar to that. It's, it's sort of like it's, and it's still that way. I mean, you know, my wife my wife will kick me out of the house because she knows if I haven't been on the river lately, like it, 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 it's needed. And she'll be like, just go get your medicine, go out on the river, go find the river and and I'll get out and I'll come home and I'll just be completely energized and significantly better than I was. If I haven't, you know, it only takes a a couple days before that, before that starts building. Absolutely. That's awesome. So yeah, we're going to go into, so with, with Hollywood Waters Journal, we're going to look at all the different aspects. So there's so many, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. I listen to tons of them and I led. There's so many great blogs. It's just so encompassing. But I think what we try to do is we want to try to stick with the trout, salmon, steelhead passion, the salmonids. And we're going to get into every form. We're going to get into dry fly fishing, spay fishing, nymphing, streamers, um, from rivers to lakes to streams to, to seas to whatever. And and I think what if we're trout guys, trout bums, troutsmen, whatever you want to call them, um, we have an itch to go towards salmon or you have an itch to go towards steel at like you did, you went to Alaska, you had to get that out of your system. And, and then as we get older, we find out we chase little eight inch brook trout and little tiny streams because that gives us the most pleasure. And, but then we go after 40 pound Atlantic salmon to Iceland, to Russia, to Quebec. And so the beauty of what hollowed waters and what we're going to create is that there are, there's no boundaries and we don't, we can't limit ourselves to, to one form. And the beauty of Michigan 
and the legacy is that we, you know, I was talking a little bit with, with Jay Wesley this morning and I said pictures of Torch Lake and uh, of the Atlantic salmon up there and they were feeding on midges on the surface and there were hundreds of them, thousands of them feeding on the surface. And I'm like, wow, they take hold and they're doing really well and they're in their 20 inch range. And I, I just said, you know, we have such a magnificent state. We have so much water. We have so many lakes, so many rivers, so many venues of trout, salmon, steelhead. I really don't think of too many places in the world that has the encompassing, uh, you know, magnitude of what Michigan has to offer. And especially in Northern Michigan, where you have it all up there, you have the Great Lakes, you have the Inland Lakes, you have the streams, you have brook trout, you have big brown trout, you have steelhead rainbows, you have, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the grayling introduction that you're heavily involved with. Um, I think that legacy is so important and that, that inverted triangle, we always talk about cat skills and we always talk about Pennsylvania and, and, you know, the Michigan's like still the lumberjacks, the, the French fur trappers were still in that great, you know, Indians are still running around up here. You know, we were still getting chased by tomahawks. you know, that's the mentality. A lot of people still think about, you have two visions of Michigan, you have Detroit and then you have everything North of there. And it's sort of a, it's sort of an interesting thing because we're just so different worlds from the urban industrial world to, to the North woods. And what you've done is, is that that Northern experience that um, you really got to pay your dues. You got to go into the, to the two tracks and you got to go into the backwoods and you got to get your butt bitten by mosquitoes and, and ticks. And, um, and that's kind of the beauty that I think, you know, Hemingway talked about and Schwieber talked about, and everybody that came along uh, were just probing that soulful searching, that trout madness, that trout magic that embraces the northern Michigan woods. So um, I think, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to talk about different topics here. Um, and um, at this point, I'm going to um, uh, take one of our um, emails that we've gotten. And it's um, it's basically. Um, something that we're, we're familiar with and, and you could light, shed some light on it, Ethan, and I could shed some light on it. But um, it's uh, from a uh, young lady. Um, she is in uh, Bloomfield Hills. Her name is Jennifer P. And she says, uh, asks us, why are wild, wild trout so difficult to catch? Um, I fished the Isabel River many times and they say it's the home, holy waters of trout fishing in America and uh, the head of to start of Trout Unlimited, but her question is, why are they so difficult to catch? Am I doing something wrong? Um, what's the deal? And she's kind of new to fishing, and, um, um, you know, a lot of people go to the Sabo um, and don't catch fish, and they're yet in the most holiest of waters on the planet. So uh, I'm going to let you go, Ethan, and say, hey, how do we, how do we A, deal with a novice going to very selective trout waters that demand a lot of attention and detail and research and entomology and what is your recommendation for somebody starting out and going into wild trout waters absolutely so i think we like to anthropomorphize fish especially trout significantly more than we should but that's part of the beauty of the species um you know and 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 wild trout, I mean, it, it isn't a secret. Wild trout are harder to catch than a hatchery raised fish. You know, when 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 a fish is brought up to, to to selectively take 
different food sources throughout the time of year, throughout the time of season, um, based on water temperatures, based on everything. It's, it's, it's harder to fool that fish than a fish that was raised solely on pellets. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, going, going from, from my perspective where, where I would say 90% of the water we fish up here is, is, is our wild trout fisheries. You know, there's a, there's a handful of tributaries of the Great Lakes that are stocked with steelhead, but as for our brook trout and brown trout populations, these are, these are almost exclusively wild fish. Um, you know, there's a saying that says that, says that uh, 90% of the fish live in 10% of the water and it's, it's as true as it gets. Um, so one of the best things that I tell people is if they're having difficulty finding fish, um, you know, especially if, if they've got like a basic understanding of casting or, or, and they've got their bug selection down is move, cover ground, cover water. Um, and from a, from a wade perspective, you know, we, and we were just joking about this on the river the other day is, is people like to go to the bridges and stay within sight of the bridges. And from our perspective for like, especially for our walking wade trips, um, you know, get, a, get away from it. And so that's kind of what I tell people is get, get more familiar with leaving the bridge, get more familiar with leaving the truck or the boat and, and get away and, and go find where those fish are because they are around, but they might not be where you're fishing. Um, right. So that's, that's probably the best advice. You've got there. a guy that comes along like me and writes a whole chapter on how to fish by bridges, right? <laughs> <laughs> because I, I've gotten more wild trout and more big brown trout by bridges. So in Nexus, I have a whole chapter on fishing bridges. And somebody says, are you, you just have to fish different than everybody else. <laughs> are you kidding me? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, because it's kind of weird how – they're like they're like churches, man. It's like like a homeless person going into a church in, on on Madison Avenue. He feels comfortable. He feels at home. And a lot of times we go to fish, and we 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 you to be complete uh, oxymoron on what you said is that people go so far, and then the fish sometimes are right there. But as a whole, you're absolutely right. They go to a bridge, they pull up, they see a posted sign, they make a few casts. Uh, they don't realize that a number one, it's probably not posted. Somebody just stuck it there because they didn't want you to go down to their fishing hole, which is typical Michigan behavior. Um, and you got to keep moving around. So, um, yeah. Uh, and then, um, so I think, go ahead. I think, I think part of it too is, is, you know, down you know, the middle part of the state, it's not as scary to leave the bridge. Right. But up here, I mean, like Pigeon River country is one of the largest is one of the largest state-owned parcels east of the Mississippi. Right. It's the largest state-owned parcel in Michigan. And and so it gets a little, you know, we call it the big wild. And so it gets a little more scary to leave the bridge if you don't know where you're going. Exactly. You know, so, um, you know, get get to know where the river is and, and, and get away from the rest of the anglers. And beautiful GPS today. And, you know, every yeah. Apple watches, our Apple phones, our Apple everything, you know, we could, we could, we could find out where we are, where we're going. I mean, we we're basically like going on the moon or Mars. Are we going on the Mars? We could, we could figure everything out just by our hands and our phones. So that's the beauty of it. Other thing, you know, I, I, it's really important. And, and some people, um, Wild trout are just, you know, that's our Mecca. That's what we want. That's what we're meant to. One thing I like about Michigan's philosophy is to stock wild strains of trout. Like they do their Gilcrest trout. They do Sturgeon River trout. They do a lot of different strains that really are more applicable to becoming wild. So a lot of our fish, even the ones that we stock, a lot of our fingerlings like here in the Muskegon, within their sturgeon river fish and stuff like that, wild rose, as soon as you talk them, like a month later, they got orange bellies and red fins and they got red spots. 
And as soon as they start adapting that, that uh, you know, uh, minnow and uh, little salmon fry and little uh, mayflies and midges, and they, they turn quickly. So the right strain is really important. And, and to, to, for the beginners, um, going to a place where it's easy to catch fish always helps. So if you could take a trip out to Jackson Hole and catch those crazy cutthroats and catch them by the dozens, that makes for a better experience. Uh, on the East Coast, I spent a lot of time in Maryland and Virginia where those hatchery trucks just pull up all the time. And it's literally people standing there waiting for 14-inch trout to be handed to them. But sometimes learning how to nymph and catch a trout and learning how to fight it, um, sometimes an easy experience is not a bad thing. Uh, but a wild fish experience and the satisfaction of fooling a wild fish on a fly maybe one that you tied uh, and going out with a guide and going into a, in a, in a pristine place like you have up there and learning the details of what's happening. And it's, it takes time. And it's, you know, when I was growing up and when you were growing up, Ethan, it was time on the water paying your dues. And there was always the, uh, always the, Hey man, that dude didn't pay his dues. He ain't paying. You know, we don't pay enough dues today because we have YouTube and we have everything else. And I think the wild trout experience really makes you pay your dues. You, you earn every fish and you have to stock them. And I think that's what the whole beauty um, is in a nutshell. But if you have a chance to go to a place where, hey, you know, I used to fish these streams in, in Virginia where they stocked them. They were brook trout streams in the, in the Shenandoah, but they also, the lower sections, they put big browns and rainbows and stuff like that. And sometimes catching one of those when it was really tough fishing was better than not catching at all. So the thing I say to Jennifer is um, take your time. You, this is not a, a, a competition sport. This is not a hero sport. It's not an action sport. It's not who's got the biggest, best, and most. It's a sport of enjoying nature and blending in with nature. And if you slow down and if you really sit down every once in a while, do less casting more observing in a spot where you didn't see fish. You might sit down for half hour, have a little brie cheese and with your wine on your little, you know, blanket and enjoy nature. And then next thing you know, there's a trout sipping right in front of your face and you put a little dry fly on and it takes it. And we just have to chill and we just have to slow down and relax. And that's, if you read Holland Waters Journal, that's where the, the writers and myself and everybody in it are just, you know, kind of smell the roses, man. And when you're dealing with wild trout, um, it's such a beauty of just watching their their surroundings and watching a hatch and watching a wild brook or a wild brown trout or a wild rainbow, or whatever, come up and take it. So I think that's that would be the best is just it's all in due time. And and that's the beauty of the fly fishing experience is let it come in, in, in increments, soak it all in. And then as you soak it in, it just gets better and better and better, like a good stew or a good soup. Wouldn't you say so, Ethan? Absolutely. And I'm going to echo you, too, in, in terms of saying the slow down thing. You know, we've got this innate innate thing as anglers that we need to be waist deep in a river casting to the opposite bank. And, you know, when our rivers up here are, you know, two or three fly rods wide, um, you know, getting just come up on the bank slow don't jump in the river and and take a minute and see what's going on because a third of the fish in the river might be right near your feet and if you get in and jump and then cast the opposite bank just because it looks good 
you're going to line every fish that's there and you're going to spook every fish for a hundred yards. Absolutely. So yeah. take, take, take time and, and definitely observe more than casting. Absolutely. So we're going to take a little break here and uh, visit with one of our sponsors. And then we're going to come back um, with Ethan Winchester and talking about the legacy. We're going to get a little bit more into that. Thank you very much. Salmon season and steelhead are coming around the corner and all you spay guys out there are looking at your tackle and equipment. Um, So I know one company that is amazing, that has been dedicated to producing the finest products since the early 90s. Um, I remember reading about Jim Vincent back in Fly Fishing Magazine and all the other magazines. He was the dean of of the early spay experience in this country. Uh, He learned it while fishing the dean in British Columbia and he came in contact with probably the the godfather of spade fishing today, Simon Gosworth, who we are so honored to have featured in our fall issue of Holland Waters Journal. Simon and Jim got together and uh, they founded Rio and Jim was all about putting together all the benefits of spade casting, all the techniques and all the lines and connections uh, that he met with British guys that were fishing in BC. Uh, so their lines today are absolutely amazing. The, the innovations just keep coming. Their interchangeable lines and sinking heads um, with their collaboration with the Mao brothers um, got together and uh, there's nothing comparable on the market today. Um, their new Skagit Max and Elite In Touch and all the other great things that they're doing, it just keeps getting better every year. I highly recommend you going to Rio.com and looking at their products. If you're a serious spay guru, uh, there's many great companies out there, but Rio is at the top, and my friend Simon Gosworth continues to do nothing but excellence at that wonderful company. Okay, we are back with Ethan, and uh, I'm going to go back just a little bit about this legacy of Michigan. So, you know, we talk about the Catskills a lot. We talk about Pennsylvania. I had a great mentor when I was in DC, um, Vince Marinero, who wrote In the Ring of the Rise and great books. And I used to fish the Latour Spring Run, talking about difficult wild fish. I still have nightmares from fishing that river because it was like impossible to catch their brown trout there. Um, and but, you know, when you look at Michigan, the legacy, you, you think of the names that we've had, um, particularly Hemingway, of course, because he spent his so much time up in northern Michigan. He was from Oak Park, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Ernie Schwiebert, Matching the Hatch, was written, matching the hatch was written in uh, 1955. He was from Chicago also, and his family would spend time in northern Michigan. And he talked a lot about the Asable and all the rivers, the Jordan and 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 um, the North Branch and the South Branch and and all the little streams up there. And uh, then you had Carl Richards, a modern icon, uh, selective trout, um, emergers, um, so many amazing books. Um, 
caddis hatches. And he was a good friend of mine that I fished with on the Muskegon. He was a dentist from Rockford, Michigan. Then Dick Popes wrote Trout Streams, um, Trout Stream Insects and Super Caddis Hatches. Then you had, oh, geez, then you had, you know, Robert Traver. You had um, Bob Linsenman, who's still writing amazing things. You got young, aspiring writers like Josh Greenberg and and Feenstra and a whole bunch of people that are just doing a lot of a lot of great innovation. So we are right up there in that whole legacy of the Catskills and, and Pennsylvania. Um, and I think we're going to get more in depth in this program and talk more and more about, about that legacy. But I know, um, you know, with the Nick Adams stories and the big two hearted stories, which, you know, actually was the Fox and, and about, you know, what John Volker said in Trout Magic about he dissected the whole big Adam, the big two hearted. And he said it was just a nice, colorful name for a cool little novel, but it was really the Fox River and it couldn't have been based on where it was near Newbury and Sine. So I'm going to have Ethan talk a little bit more about um, his experience with the whole Hemingway gig um, and tell us a little bit more how it affects his whole, his whole area. Um, and where he pushes. Yeah. So, um, so Heming, Hemingway, uh, spent his summers on Walloon. Um, I mean, early on his, when he was born, his parents bought a place up there and, and, uh, it was Windermere and, and, um, that's about 10 miles as crow flies from my house. Um, so, you know, he, he spent his, his summers over there on Horton Creek, um, and, and, you know, really spent a lot of time down on Lake Charlevoix too. You know, a lot of people think he spent time fishing Walloon and he really didn't like fishing Walloon a whole lot. Cause that was his mom's domain. So he'd leave and he'd go fish Lake Charlevoix. And that's why he kind of gravitated over towards Horton Creek. Um, and then in his later, you know, his, his teenage years and stuff, he, he, he started spending more time over to, you know, the, the middle part of the state pigeon river country with the sturgeon and the, and the black. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, um, and, and, and don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure he, he was late to his, it was his first wedding. Um, because he was fishing on the sturgeon and the, fi- and the, and the, and the fishing was so good. Um, you know, and, and then you fast forward to, you know, he went off to uh, world war one and came back and, you know, and then, you know, a lot of people are really familiar, you know, they're not so familiar with the, the early Nick Adams stories, but a lot of people are familiar, like you said, with, with the big two hearted. And, and there's a lot of imagery in that, in that story when, you know, when he went up to, to see Sini and, and Sini was burned to the ground. And it's really a metaphor for, for the, the horrors that he dealt with in war and, and, you know, and that he, that he walked a full day to get out of town um, to fish and, and he was out in the middle of nowhere. He wanted to get away from people. And, and, you know, obviously I've never been off to war, but I still look at, I still look at my days on the water in a similar way. Like, you know, I've been having that conversation with a lot of people recently and the we had this kind of mass influx migration of, of folks from Chicago and New York during COVID. And, you know, we, our local school district, Toski went up 20 some odd percent for enrollment this year. Amazing. And, so, you know, people are like, wow, it's so nice. And it's, and, and this is, you know, it's so nice to get away up here. And, and I was like, well, you know, you're coming from the city and obviously, you know, we do have a little bit, you know, our, our, our way of life is a little bit slowed down compared to, compared to the big city. And, you know, and, and people are like, well, where do you go to get away? And I was like, even further than you, you know, and, and I do, I have to, I, you know, I, I take a day and I'll hike to where I don't see anybody or I'll, you know, I spend a lot of time up in that area. I, I you know, I was up on, I was up on the Fox back in August last year and, and I'll probably be making a trip up here in the next few weeks. Um, 
you know, so I spend a lot of time in the UP and I go north to Ontario, you know, and, and there's a reason why, why Hemingway really enjoyed this area so much. And it, and it's, it's, it is it's the diversity that we've got to offer. And, and a lot of our streams are, are just as good, if not better than they were during his era. Um, and especially from a, from a lot, you know, go back to the wild trout standpoint, you know, a lot of, a lot of the trout he was catching were stock fish and, you know, Michigan used to stock the hell out of our trout streams before the, before the salmon stocking program, you know, the Jordan used to get a hundred thousand fish a year. Um, you know, and so a lot of those were, were, were stocked fish, but you know, today these are phenomenal wild fisheries. Yeah. And, And I think, um, you know, a lot of it, um, is, you know, I just, you know, you watched and I watched uh, the Hemingway series on PBS and, 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 you know, he was a man had haunted by a lot of demons like most writers are. Um, I'm not saying anything about myself, but uh, I'm just saying that it's, um, you know, you, 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 your mind is working so hard and you're trying constantly to create a different world on paper and you're, you're, you're forever looking at things in a different way. And he was haunted by these demons of, of who he really was. And I mean, we had four or five, five wives, I think, or four wives, I can't remember. And he just was like, his life changed constantly and his whims of, of, of his, of what he was doing and, and how he was doing it and where he was going. And he, from bullfighting to, to, to deep sea fishing and, you know, the, but then in the end, he got back into trout fishing again. And that, that, in search of wild trout is sort of like in search for your soul, for your identity. Uh, it, it exposes everything about you, your patience level, your intimacy. You, you know, you go into the woods and you you escape from reality. And a lot of, of the trout experience is um, is like Thoreau says, men fish their whole lives and find out it wasn't the fish that they were after. And uh, I think that really knocks home hard with Hemingway was that, you know, these important memories that were founded in his youth, like in our youth, stick with us the rest of their life. And my best memories of my lifetime was, you know, I grew up in three countries by the time I was 12 years old. So I was born in, you know, Niagara Falls, New York, and then I grew up in Canada. And then I grew up, I spent time in Eastern Europe and Poland. And um, they were all founded in fly fishing. And my dad was a fly fisher. My uncle in, in Poland who taught me how to fish the northern streams off the Baltic um, those memories are what you'll share forever. And those are the ones that, that are intimate to you. And that's why the woods, the waters, the fish, the experience is a, is a Zen karma experience. And it's something we can't replace. And that's why we can't afford to treat fly fishing like an action sport. It's, it's more than that. It encompasses life in general. Um, and, you know, Michigan there were some great fly patterns that came out of Michigan. Everybody talks about the Catskills and, you know, Theodore Gordon and, and all the flies out of Pennsylvania and stuff, but the Adams fly, the Joe's hopper, the borchers, I mean, you know, you were writing that piece for, for, for the small stream piece uh, for hollowed waters. And you have a beautiful, beautiful fly, the sweater fly and uh, sweater Adams. And um, tell us, you know, your, your, your thoughts about Michigan patterns and, and your experiences with them, and do they still work? I mean, are they still as, as good as ever? I would say if you're if you're a Michigan angler and you don't have Adams variations, Borchers variations, and Robert Drake variations in your box, you're doing something wrong. Um, you know, they're they're so ingrained in what we have, and and you know, and and 
and the history behind them is pretty cool too. You know, you've got like the Roberts Drake, that was Clarence Roberts. And that was, um, um, uh, why can't I think of who it is? Uh, Ray Schmidt, that was his uncle. You know, and Ray's still involved in, in, you know, in the industry and, and, uh, you know, but then you've got, um, you know, the, the, the sweater fly, you know, I've got the, the better sweater version and, and that's just, it's kind of a, a twist body Adams. Um, but that was built off of the, uh, um, Madsen's, um, one yeah. of Madsen's. Yeah. yeah. He was a yeah. guide on the Asable and he, he used to guide, um, he used to guide, um, Ernie Schwieber. So in, in NIMS, Ernie had two books, but in NIMS, he talks a lot about Madsen and, 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 you know, he said uh, uh, one thing that was pounded into to Ernie at a young age was by Matson. Earl Matson said, fish them sweepers, damn it, fish them sweepers. Uh, he used to kid my father, get your flying closer to them sweepers. He was never happy with your flying. I think, Ethan, you could probably um, uh, go a little further on that thing about the sweepers. Yes. Sweepers are, are kind of the cream of the crop. You know, it, everybody wants just, you know, they, they, they all migrate to the holes. And, and, you know, one of the things with dry fly fishing, and especially with some of the Eastern influences, we have to do this kind of upstream dead drift, you know, don't let your flies move thing. And, and don't get me wrong for, for, you know, for spinners and whatnot, you know, yeah, you can put fish down if the presentation's off, but I'll tell you what, with my stones and hoppers and what we, we, we fish the sweepers and we skate them. And, you know, you've got to, you got to get some movement in front of those. Those fish are, are, are hanging out in those little teeny tiny branches coming off those sweepers, you know, just enough to break it, but they'll come up out of that stuff. Um, but they're not coming out for a size 18 dead drifted mayfly. They're going to come out into their feeding lanes when they're feeding on spinners. But during the day when you're searching, you know, it's, I mean, we, we'll skate stones and twitch, twitch hoppers, you know, along all that small water stuff. Um, it doesn't always have to be this traditional style, you know, upstream dead drift mayfly. Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting. People don't know the structure of our rivers uh, when they come to Michigan, but we have true spring creeks and the beauty of Michigan is it's one giant sandy place with beautiful birches and hardwoods and conifers and, and pines and stuff in the forest. But this sand that we have is our blessing and the amount of water that we normally have, except for this year, which is the worst drought I've ever seen in history. But normally this, this sand that we have acts like the chalk downs in England on the test and the itching and just traps all this water and creates these underground caverns that let this 48 to 55 degree water out all year long. Uh, it's truly amazing that Michigan is actually one giant spring creek. And those spring creeks exist from Detroit, Northville, Michigan, Paint Creek, all the way up to, to your area and on the western side of the state. And that's why we are such trout country. We don't have the gradient in the mountains that other places have, but this cold water and this alkaline water that is associated with it, even though we have forests, is what makes Michigan such a great wild trout salmon state. And it's very reminiscent. When I first came to Michigan um, to fish the Paramarquette River when I was a boy, we had a place in Georgian Bay in Ontario. And we used to fish the little beaver and all those little streams there that are look almost identical, the Michigan rivers. And we came over to Paramarquette and we saw that Northern Michigan looked a lot like the Baltic area of Poland and Sweden and Finland and 
Denmark, and it was very similar in structure, but that cold water is trapped. And last summer, I, I did some guiding up on the White River in the forest, and um, in 90, 100 degree temperatures, that creek was 52 degrees, 49 degrees, and it was just remarkable to see that amount of cold water that you have up in northern Michigan, we have down here, even in lower Michigan, down in the St. Joe, there's creeks there that are 48 degrees. So even though we don't have gradients, which you associate with wild trout, but our water is fertile, it has lots of food, and it's and it's alkaline, and that's why we have some of the best trout water on the planet, bar none. Um, and let's let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, we're gonna take a little break right now. I think it's time to um, to feature um, our sponsor, and then we're going to come back, and uh, we're going to um, we're going to uh, talk a little more with Ethan about techniques and wild brook trout and things of that nature. So we're going to go from there, and uh, there's a lot to share about Michigan and the legacy, which we're talking about here. And uh, we're with Ethan, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Listeners, you're probably tying a lot of flies when you're listening to our Hollywood Waters podcast, which a lot of people do. Um, there's one company that stands out amongst the best and without doubt um, have no other competitors, in my opinion. It's Hairline Dubbing. Um, I've known of Marcos Barraga and his affiliation with the Flying Field back in Chicago back in the 90s. And um, Marcos has still been spearheading this company and all the great people that are there continue to provide service and the best products I've ever seen. It's a one-stop shopping place. And I mean, it, it appeals to absolutely every facet of fly fishing from the traditional dry fly, hackle person to nymphers, to streamer addicts, to the spay uh, genre that they have and all the synthetics and materials that they they put together the new hairline dubbing catalog is, is a monster Bible of just about everything from the finest hooks uh, to every material that has ever been made. If you're serious about fly tying, like everybody on this podcast is, um, I strongly recommend going to hairline dubbing and look at their great assortment that keeps getting updated every month. And they have an online app for dealers to order from. Hairline is the one-stop shopping center of absolutely everything you could possibly imagine for fly tying and the fly fishing. Okay, we are back. We're going to take another question. And this question is from... Um, I think it's from Malcolm. Malcolm is um, in Rochester, New York. And he asks, why do we have so much attention being paid to Michigan and New York and other places like that? Um, He fishes Ontario and he fishes a lot of the streams in Ontario. And he's wondering why we pay so much uh, attention to um, in magazines, in print, um, to to the American experience. What about Ontario? 
Well, I'm going to tell you, Malcolm, that um, my magazine um, and our magazine, Hollowed Waters, is going to feature a lot of Ontario information. And Ontario is very similar because there's a lot of old fishing clubs in Ontario, little places on the Credit River, northern Ontario, the Brook Trout Experience, uh, Quebec. Um, Ontario, it just maybe there's there's more media in the American print than there is in the Canadian print, but Canada has a legacy that's mind-boggling from, from brook trout to Labrador to Quebec to the Maritimes for Atlantic salmon. Um, the, the area around Georgian Bay, those streams, there's old fishing clubs there. There's a whole Osabo legacy in Ontario that we're going to delve more into. The Grand River right now has an amazing fishery. I have a biologist friend over there, Larry Halleck, that's just amazing. He sent me a picture this morning of two monster 25-inch browns taken on the hatch last night that are wild, beautiful fish that uh, just as good as Michigan. So yes, we will be covering more and more uh, on Ontario. And uh, I have a little soft spot for there because I lived in, in Ontario as a little boy for a while. So uh it's a beautiful place, great people, wonderful people, and uh, we will be featuring more. But we're going to get back with uh, Ethan right now, and we're going to talk about uh, wild brookies. So um, your Jordan and all your other beautiful little streams there um, are, have these gorgeous wild brook trout. Um, you know, everybody's myth is that brook trout are the dumbest fish on the planet, that, you you know, you catch every single one of them. And... Um, why don't you tell us a little more about cracking that myth, Ethan, and that how you've had some of your days pulling your hair out trying to catch brook trout when they were taking something you had no idea about. I always joke with with folks, you know, during July, August when we get tracos and summer olive hatches, and if you ever want to, if you ever want to pull your hair out and and beat yourself up, is tie on a size twenty two and get snubbed by a seven inch brook trout, you know. But if you want to fool him, throw on an ant any time of the year and he'll eat it. Yeah, um, you know, but no, I, I'd say that I'd say big brook trout, you know, I, and when I say big brook trout, I'd say anything over, let's say 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have them. I'd, I'd say those fish are as smarter, smarter than any, any brown trout we have. Um, and the reason being is that they have to get smart earlier. Right. Um, you know, they grow faster and, and so they either make mistakes and get caught you know, and then the other thing we've got is, you know, we've got, uh, you know, smaller size limits for our brook trout, you know, on a lot of these streams, seven inches, some of them eight, you know, so, so they, they, they aren't protected up to, you know, 10, 12, 15 inches, like some of our brown trout streams, yeah. um, you know, so, so they, they don't get a chance to get educated. They have to either figure it out or they get caught, yeah. um, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, uh, small brook trout. Yeah. They're, they're ready to the fly. Sure. They're they're as what would they, what do they say? Susceptible to the gear, I think was the historic way that they referred to it. Exactly. Um, and you know, and, and, uh, but on the other hand, you know, going out and catching some of these little jewels, um, you know, these wild little brook trout are, and even, even these, you know, fish that get 12, 14, 15, 16 inches. Um, it, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, so there's the, I know you're working hard to get 15 inch regulations type three, which I spent almost 20 years trying to get for, um, for my home waters on the Muskegon. We finally got them. And I know you're doing, uh, you're working really hard with the DNR to get those regulations also. And people are questioning why, why do you want to get those regulations, you know, blah, 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 you know, and they're saying, you know, you know, you, you know, brook trout's never going to grow above 10 inches. It's impossible. You know, they just don't do that. It's not in their DNA. Um, 
I'm going to say that's a bunch of hog bunk because I, I, I fished a stream in Pennsylvania called the Big Spring Run. And it's famous for um, my mentor, Vince Marinero, talking about brook trout that were 16, 18 inches on a regular basis. And that would fish, feed on midges all day and trichos and everything like that and little tiny ants and jacids. And that stream was you could hop across it in most spots. Um, the key to growing trout is fertility of water and fertility of food source. And a trout will grow big. Why do big browns, five, 10 pound browns exist in bathtub sized creeks? Because there's a food source there. So if you have the food source, fish will grow big. If you don't pluck them out at eight, 10 inches and throw 10 of them on a stringer, they're going to have more fish in the creek. So we, there's a lot, a trout's going to grow totally commensurate with the amount of food that it has in that river. And the beauty of Michigan rivers, especially the lower peninsula, as you get into the upper peninsula, there's more sterility in the water based on the mineral content of the water, based on the amount of acidity in the water. Whereas the lower Michigan rivers are more 100% spring fed. So the, the alkalinity fuels the, the fertility drive. And thus you have the ability to create big brown trout. I have a little creek here in the Manistee Forest, five minutes down the road, that the DNR shocked last year and they said they'd never seen more 20 to 25 inch brown trout in my life. And I could go in there any given day. And if I could catch one a year, it's a miracle. Okay. So this is what tells you about wild trout. If you protect them, you give them the cover and we have natural cover in our rivers called sweepers. And that's when trees fall, you have a trout condo. So the best thing that you could happen is dump trees like they did on the Asable and other Northern rivers. You dump trees, it, it generates vegetation, Bingo, you have a trout condo and you have 20-inch trout and brown trout in those condos. So um, that's the beauty of that water in a brook trout. I've, I've gotten my butt kicked on the north branch of the Asable on an August night when they were feeding on midges and trico spinners and blueing olive spinners and 24s and 26s and 28s. And I swear to God, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trout rising. And I'm a Spring Creek guy from the Pennsylvania heritage, and I could not catch these damn brook. <laughs> I literally drank a whole bottle of something that night because I couldn't stand the fact that I got skunked. Me, the master, you know, the jacid master got his ass kicked, you know. So um, that's the beauty of it. Uh, you also have really big browns on your river up there, too, uh, like like the Jordan, places like that. How do those fish behave? Are they nocturnal? Do they get after the hatches? Do they go into the to the mouse and to the, to the big fly gig at nighttime? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and those fish range, you know, across, across Northern Michigan, you know, these fish haven't been stocked since, I mean, most of these Browns haven't been stocked since, you know, the the sixties. So these are all wild fish, but the Jordans got them, sturgeons got them, pigeons got them, you know, upper mean a And, and yeah, I mean, you know, once, once a fish gets big enough, yeah, they'll, they'll eat bugs here and there, but you know, it's a lot easier to eat, you know, a rodent or two, um, once a week than, than to eat, you know, a hundred mayflies a day. Um, you know, so on, on some of our creeks, uh, we, we noticed that, that these fish are, are predatory period year round. Um, even during hatch time, we don't see a whole lot of activities from some of these larger Browns. Whereas on some of, some of them, um, we, we see significant hatch activity, you know, and, and we'll, we'll, and it's sometimes the best time to get those fish is, is during during early season hatches, you know, Hendricks and sulfurs, mahogany's, isos, um, before before they really kind of lose that and then go to the mouse game. Um, 
or, you know, streamers, whatnot, but it's, it's just kind of interesting. It really just depends on the stream. Um, but we've got, we've got some of these fish that just, just chase bait fish and, and rodents. And, and some of these fish really like chewing bugs, but it's, it's definitely stream dependent. And, and that's the beauty of, of up here is that it's not a one size fits all type scenario. You know, the, each one of these little creeks, each one of these rivers has its own personality and the fish act very different in each one. Um, and that's, what's nice is if, if, if one thing's not working or if you want to try a different technique, you can usually find what you're looking for on one of the streams. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. So we're going to, uh, we're going to take another break right now, but, uh, that's good stuff. Ethan, thank you so much. And, uh, hold on. We'll be back in a minute. Hey listeners, um, so many of you are into books, and if you know and subscribe to Hollowed Waters Journal, we are big on books and art. We have whole columns dedicated to it, and some of our best featured artists, fly fishing artists, are big, big authors that have written so many great books along the way. I've learned everything that I've known from books since I was a young boy, and many of you need to get in touch with that art form of spreading the word and getting into the foundation of every part of the fly fishing experience for trout, salmon, and steelhead. Um, today, the best places to go are your fly shops. If they carry a book selection, they could also order books for you. Also, Amazon is absolutely amazing. Everything is there. It's a one-stop shopping center. So I'd like to invite you to come to Hollywood Waters Journal and subscribe and see our dedication to the art of books and fly fishing, which it probably has more books written about that subject matter than any other sport or genre. Uh, come to hollowedwaters.com, see what we're doing. And if you like a lot of the stuff that we've been doing, a lot of it is in the foundation of my own authored books that I have written. Uh, Selectivity, the theory and method of fly fishing for fussy trout, salmon, and steelhead around the world is one solid foundation. And my latest book, The Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, is for the real diehard brown trout and Atlantic salmon people. A lot of time I see on social media and other blogs, a lot of misinformation about brown trout. Our passion is overwhelming when it comes to that subject matter, but a lot of that stuff is in uh, my last two books and it forms the foundation of a lot of what we do. So go and seek out books, spread them, share them with friends and dig deep in there because there's so much knowledge to be had. fun yeah that's great one thing i wanted to say and 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 you switched the topic on me so i didn't get a chance to but um and i i I think i think i'm stealing this from you and i don't know if it was in selectivity or what but you one thing you one thing you hit on at some point was the the creeks up here are high like a hybrid system you know, yeah. so like you've got these spring creeks, but then we've got, you know, you don't have as much elevation down there, but with, with the Gaylord Moraine popping up in Gaylord, you know, we go from, 
I'm, I'm about six, I'm about 680 or 690 here at my house, I think, right. but we'll go up to like 1100 feet in, you know, up in Gaylord and yeah, River. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you get these, like, we get, you know, you get freestone influence during spade events, um, comparative to like traditional spring creeks out east or out west where you don't where it's just flat you know like and it can change the whole game you know when when you get those but the spade events are quick you know like the jordan as soon as it stops raining that gauge starts coming down yeah that that's good point and i you know the sad thing is i've written so freaking much i can't even remember what i've written (laughs) that's i'm pretty sure that's a you thing though i'm pretty sure that's a me thing it's called fusion spring creeks yeah they're a fusion between freestone and and spring creeks yeah and that is that is why your area as you get up higher you have those gradiated morainal areas yeah um and where you'll be driving is flat and also you're a freaking mountain where the hell is the mountain coming from all right buddy good talking to you i will be back with you in the next couple of days and then we'll set the next date up sounds good okay brother take care, Thanks, take care.